This is the Powered Up Podcast, show 121. I honestly think active learning is the magic sauce. It's not flipped learning. But flipped learning is the easy button to get you to active learning. It's what makes it easy. Because what it does is it gets the teacher away from the front of the room. And once you're away from the front of the room, most teachers, professors, whatever, they start asking the question, what am I going to now do with this extra time? Welcome to a real-world education with insight and advice from teachers in the game, where current and former educators reveal what truly sets apart the great teachers and what it takes to make a positive impact on students. Whether you're in pre-service learning, new to the game, or a seasoned veteran, this is the show for you. You'll leave feeling inspired to take action because we are powering education by empowering you. Hey, what's going on, everyone? This is Kennerman, host of the Power to Podcast, and I am here for the first time in a long time without my co-host, Mr. Matt Rogers. And so tonight I had an absolutely unbelievable conversation with John Bergman. And honestly, this is kind of a dream come true for me because he is an educator. He is an author. He is a speaker that I have followed for a long, long time and had a direct impact on the way I taught and the way learning was facilitated in my classroom all the way back to 2015. So John Bergman is most known for his work with Aaron Sands in writing the book on flipping your classroom. And he has done a lot since then. We talk a lot about flipping your classroom, how to create flipped lessons, screencast, mastery learning. We talk a lot of different concepts tonight and we go knee deep in instruction. We go knee deep in why this is so beneficial for students how teachers can get started, and how this can truly transform the way learning is facilitated in your classroom. So although I miss Matt, and although I love having him here with me, as I share a little bit into the show, I'm selfishly a little happy he wasn't here only because I was so excited for this conversation. I got to hog the mic and really uh, have that one-on-one time with John, but he just gives such great ideas, such great insight. And what I can promise you as is at times it may seem overwhelming, at times it may seem like this is too much or this is a lot, but I promise you it's not. And I promise you as we go through the conversation, we break it down and we simplify. And we also point out the fact that in 2018, when I was using this, when he was was writing on this and speaking around the world, and I was doing a little bit of presenting on this at local conferences, There was a huge barrier in just getting teachers comfortable with the fact of making a screencast, making a video, how to use the technology. The pandemic has shifted that understanding where we all kind of get that now. We all have tools in our pocket. We all have screencast tools. Some of us use Edpuzzle and other things to track students and embed questions into it. So that piece is out of the way. And now we can truly focus on how to leverage this instructional strategy to have an impact on the learning that takes place in the classroom. So I think you will love this conversation. So stay tuned throughout because we go through highs and lows. We go through things that make it seem incredibly far-fetched as well as super simplified 
in something that you can truly implement in the next couple of days in your classroom. So let's check in with our Teach Better affiliate and jump right into our conversation with John Bergman. This podcast is a proud member of the Teach Better Podcast Network. Better today, better tomorrow, and the podcast to get you there. You can find out more at teachbetter.com slash podcast. Now let's get back to the episode. Hi, John. Welcome to the Powered Up Podcast. How are you doing tonight? I'm doing great. Uh, excellent. I am very, very excited to have you on this conversation and this podcast. Uh, like I, I shared with you, I, I've been following you for a long time now. And I'm also, I always love having my, having my co-host Matt here, but I'm a little selfishly happy that he's not here. So I get to hog the conversation uh, as, as we learn from you tonight. So please kick things off for us real simple. Just officially introduce yourself. Let us know where you're coming from and give us your, your snapshot and your backstory in how you're involved and in, in a part of education. Yeah, I'm John Bergman. I started teaching in 1986 in uh, inner city Denver, Colorado. I've gone to, to been in a number of schools. I taught in an urban school. I've taught in a blue collar school. I taught in kind of a suburban school, a rural school, a very wealthy suburb school, and now even a private school. But uh, I guess what I'm, I mostly taught uh, high school science, chemistry and physics and earth science and different subjects in science. And uh, you know, what I'm most known for is Aaron Sams and I in 2007 began the development of the flipped classroom model in our rural school, Woodland Park, Colorado, Woodland Park High School. And uh, I am, we, Aaron and I wrote a book called Flip Your Classroom, which led to 12 or 13 books. I'd have to sit and count them. Uh, which led me to travel the world, to go see everything you can imagine in the world, to work with schools all over the world. You know, I've been everywhere you can think of from New Zealand and Australia and South America and China and Europe and Turkey and the Middle East and everywhere. But then uh, in 2019, I really felt the call to go back to the classroom. So I'm now back uh, teaching full-time high school science. I had kids this morning. Uh, yeah, that's my story. That's amazing. And I'm, I'm really looking forward to, to going through all facets of that. What I would love to know is when you were transitioning through those different demographic of schools and school districts and, and cultures and, and communities, what did you notice was what were big changes that you had to adapt to as you worked with schools that were in very different communities? And then what also held true? What was a, a standard of your classroom or a standard of the way you interacted with, with students and parents, regardless of the type of community you were teaching? May, I guess, Ken, I'd start with the similarities. You know, kids are kids are kids. You know, when I started in 86 uh, at an inner city school, there were a lot of, you know, insecure, you know, adolescent kids who were just growing up. And in many ways, a kid still is the same. They're, they're, it's just, a you know, they're going through those uh lots of changes in their life at that stage of life. And I think there's a lot of similarities. Now, clearly our society has changed a lot since 1986. When I first started teaching, I kept track of my grades on a piece of paper, like a little grid thing that I was handed out this little thing. I had to add the things up by myself. I, there's no copy machines. I mean, <laughs> people have no idea what we had to go through for teaching way back in that day. But, but uh, so, I mean, the world has gone through a huge technological change. The computing age came of age during my career in education. And I think that has fundamentally changed. I guess now what I'm seeing uh, as I look at my students, I'm increasingly concerned just about how 
technology is negatively influencing students' brains uh, in ways that I'm a little bit worried about um, you know, with you know, sort of technology addictions, especially brought on by uh, the COVID pandemic. So I think there's some things that are, I mean, I, I believe we're now in the most uh, distracted generation, maybe I would say in the history of the world. And I see that in my students and I think that's not helping them. I'm not saying, I'm not, uh, you know, I mean, here the guy who helped start flip learning is saying that we need to be careful about technology. I know that's kind of weird, but uh, I do believe that we need to think what that looks like and how to use it well and to help our students to not uh, use it, misuse it in ways that are actually harming them. Absolutely. So I, I'm very aligned with with some of your thoughts there, and and I I kind of feel like we're getting towards a conversation that I would really love to have. So. Can you please define what you would define a flipped classroom as? Please speak to the story of kind of how it developed and and how it may be transformed from from year to year. I might jump in a little bit and share my own story with with utilizing it as well. Yeah, so in 2007, Aaron and I were teaching at this rural school in Colorado, and we had a lot of kids who were missing class because when you're a rural school, if a kid's on the baseball team, the debate team, uh, you're on a bus at noon. Uh, on the way to the closest high school, which was 45 minutes, but some schools were three hour drives. And so our kids in the afternoon were gone. And so we discovered software, some screencasting software that doesn't exist anymore. And we started recording our lessons in the morning so they'd have something to watch. And then our director of curriculum, she came down one day and she was having a chat. She says, you know, Aaron and John, I love what you guys are doing with this recording. My daughter's attending a local university and one of her professors is recording his lectures and my daughter loves it. And then she said this, this is the kind of weird thing that made us start everything. She said, because my daughter doesn't have to go to class anymore. And so that afternoon we said, that was a weird conversation. And that's when we said, well, wait a second, what's the value of class time if you don't have to go to class? And so we uh, said, well, what if we like pre-recorded our lessons? And, and I'm not, we don't even know who actually said that, but we looked at each other and said, well, we should do that. And that's how the whole thing started uh, in 2007. And we said, let's do it. And then we saw crazy good results. We saw test scores go up one standard deviation. We saw an amazing transformation in our classrooms. We little did we know that this would become a movement that would help teachers all around the world, that it would help teachers with COVID. I mean, since that time, we eventually wrote a book and that book was translated in, I want to say 13 languages which then led to many other books, which then led to um, kind of a, a body of knowledge about what are best practices in flip learning. And we didn't know if there was best practices, we were just playing around with this stuff. Uh, but now we really know, I mean, the, the research, there was no research. Now there is thousands and thousands and thousands of studies uh, talking about the efficacy of flip learning, and not just the efficacy, but also how it works well. You know, you know, what are good strategies of flip learning? What are poor strategies? So, and, and also, I mean, I'm actually not flipping my class anymore. Sort of I am. I'm doing mastery learning. I've just written a book. My newest book here is the Mastery Learning Handbook. And my students go through a mastery, I, would, I call it like mastery, you know, empowered by flipped. So my students work at a, at a flexible pace as they walk through content. And uh, now it doesn't work unless I've got the flipped content. So that's the important piece of the puzzle. But there's now a huge movement across the world moving to a mastery competency-based learning. 
and um, flipped is really the magic sauce to make it work. So, I mean, I, there's a lot of things that have happened. I don't know. We can go a lot, a lot of directions here in our conversation. I, I, I totally agree with all that. And, and what, what the magic is not, is not the recording. It's what happens in the classroom. So can you speak to that? How, you know, cause I've, I've taught teachers, I've encouraged teachers to use this strategy. I've used it myself and it's not about the video or the lesson being recorded. That's, that's the setup to the magic. So how does, how does it transform the way a class operates? Because teachers, if you are pre-recording lessons for students and then they're walking in the next day and you're just teaching the same thing you've always taught, they're going to stop watching your lessons because there was no value to the lesson that they watched because now they're just hearing it again. So how does it change the way your classroom Well, works? first of all, never do that. I mean, if, if you expect them to watch it, then don't re-lecture uh, or you'll just ruin the whole system. <laughs> but the best way to understand flipped learning, I believe, is to think of three pictures of Bloom's taxonomy. So, you know, you think of Bloom's taxonomy as typically uh, presented as a diamond, right? At the bottom is knowledge, understanding, application, analysis, evaluation, creation. And it's a, it's a triangle. And if you think of a traditional classroom, my traditional classroom, when I was a teacher uh, for 19 years, honestly, before the flip thing started, and I would stand up and I'd do my chalk talk every day, uh, or not every day, but many days. And uh, then the students would, uh, they would do the, e I call this the easy stuff. I would do knowledge transfer, information, uh, knowledge and understanding in class, and then I would send them home to apply, analyze, evaluate, and create. Of course, in a flipped classroom, if you think of Bloom's taxonomy, put it upside down, and if time is the area of the inverted pyramid, if you will, you'll spend less time in knowledge and understanding and more time on applying, analyzing, evaluating, and creating. And then as I've thought more, and I, in another book I wrote, I, I introduced this idea of flipped as a diamond. Um, and if you think of it more as a diamond, I think you should spend the bulk of your class time. Again, time is the, is the area of the, is the width. Yeah. And so we spend the bulk of your time in the middle bloom taxonomy in the application and the analysis section, you still need information transfer. So I'm not anti-lecture by the way, that sounds weird. I, even though I haven't lectured since 2007 to my class, I haven't, um, uh, I have lectured, but it's through these cheesy videos and these readings that my students do. So that sets them up, as you talked about earlier, that sets them up so that we can do interesting, engaging things in class. And there's so many different activities that you can do in class. And it depends on the lesson. It depends on the content of your, of your class. Uh, yeah, I mean, if you're, a, if you're a history teacher, you probably want to have discussions and debates. This is what you do in class after the video or the reading is set up. If you're an English teacher, maybe you want them to write write essays without chat GPT. <laughs> uh, you want them to do, you want them to analyze literature. Um, if you're a world language teacher, you want them to start, you want to practice speaking the target language or writing in the target language. If you're a physical education teacher, you want them not to learn how to play the game. You want them to play the game. If you're a coach, a lot of sports teams have flipped their, their practices. And some with literally one state and national championships, um, they have flipped their, their practices. So the student has a short video they watched about the plays. I'm thinking of a football team, a U.S. football team, gridiron. And they have, they flipped that and then they have more time to practice. And the more time to practice, of course, the better they perfect their skills, the better they do on the field. Um, I'm a science teacher. And as a science teacher, uh, we do more experiments. 
uh, more problem solving. I mean, there's so many different activities you can do and it depends really on your content, right? Things that we've always known are good for kids. And what flip does is it gives you more time, right? I, I've always, before I flipped, I did experiments. After I flipped, I did more, more hands-on. It's a win. It really is. And, and homework is, I go back and forth on homework in, in so many ways. And I, I did in the classroom as well, but you're controlling the homework. You're eliminating the potential for frustration because they don't have to, they don't have to apply. They don't have to work at higher level thinking skills when they're at home without the quote unquote expert, their teacher, and, you know, possibly need the support of their parents. It's a controlled environment. It's a controlled length of video. It's a controlled, maybe they have notes to take with it, or, or maybe there's a small worksheet applied to it, or maybe they literally just have to, to watch it or prep a lab sheet or, or different things, but it's a controlled amount of time. Students can watch it. At, I have, I've had many students tell me they watch all of my videos at, at one and a half or two times speed. And you know what? I would never know because they always came in showing that they watched it or they listened to it and they understood it. So if you want to watch it at two times speed and you can still get it, great. It gives them the opportunity to pause. It gives so many positive aspects. And so you're right. It was, you said earlier about preparing teachers for the, for the pandemic. Creating screencasts was, was not new to me when the, when the pandemic started, but it was for many teachers. And as we transitioned back into schools, depending on where you were, you were out longer. My district, we were half and half for a while. And so teachers were using some of their own videos. They were using resources like Edpuzzle to deliver content to students because it, learning was asynchronous half of the time. And now as we trans back, transition back into very normal environments, there's this push of like, keep using that stuff. And I, and I see teachers just having kids watch videos in class or, you know, just watch the video. And then there's the push the other way of, I need to get kids off of screens. They were on screens too much. And I believe there's a, there's a clear, fair balance between that. And so you've kind of, you've spoken to it a little bit with what you're saying in your work now back in the classroom, but how has your skill set of, of developing videos and developing screencasts transformed into this mastery learning where you kind of alluded to not really doing it as a flipped model anymore? Well, and I really call it a mastery learning model and then if, and that's what it is. So the students, I mean, the big idea of mastery, we've all had to master driving before we got our driving past the driving test, right? So you skip, hopefully <laughs> some people aren't very good drivers, even after they get a driving license. But, uh, the idea is that mastery has been around forever. I mean, if you're a doctor, you have to pass your boards and then you've got to go through a residency. There's, there's things you have to do before you get your license to say you can practice uh, medicine or uh, law doc degrees. That's really the same idea. So my students will work through a given uh, body of content. So we'll have a unit, I call it levels because I've slightly gamified the class. So they work through a level at a slightly different pace. So right now my, my students are, you know, we're, it's, it's the end of April. We're about to finish, May's coming. And so in my chemistry class, for example, we are on the last unit and the last unit is level nine. And I've got some students today who were finishing up 9.4 and I've got some students who are at 9.7. 9.7 is the last lesson of the year. And so they're all at a slightly different place. When they finish level nine, they will have a summative test and they have to demonstrate formatively mastery as they move through this. They have to demonstrate mastery on 9.1, 2, 3, et cetera. 
and then they will take a summative exam, which they then have to demonstrate mastery to get, you know, on that. If they fail, they do not demonstrate mastery, then they will take it over until they pass it. And then as a note, at the end of the year, what they're going to do is we have a, a big end of year project. So I moved to a project based learning and it ties the concepts that they've been learning throughout the year all together. So they're going to use elements of level one through level nine, if you will, to uh, solve a chemistry problem uh, with three different methods and evaluate the quality of each method, you know, very high kind of Bloom's taxonomically. Uh, these are, you know, evaluation type skills, um, analysis, etc. So those, that's kind of, you get the idea. And, and throughout the whole year, we've been doing this uh, and the mastery thing, it, just works. It's, it's the magic thing, really. It's, it's something I really wanted to get to when I was teaching fifth grade, I was close. I, I did a, I don't know what kind of version you want to call it, but students were working at their own pace in my classroom, but I, I collected everybody at the end of the unit. So everybody due due to one, just, I needed more time to really bring the whole thing together, plus the little bit of the pressure of pacing with, with my district, with when units had to be completed and kind of keeping everybody relatively on the same timeline. I think if I was there a couple more years, I would have found a way out of that. But I kind of allowed them to navigate through a unit at their own pace with scaffolds, like you said, the formative checks, pulling small groups. And then they all were funneled and collected and they took a summative assessment on, on the same day. My, my kids still take a summative. They will all take their first attempt on the same day because um, I, their first attempt, and then, you know, 60% or so will pass it on the first attempt. And then I've got to work with the 40% who are still needing extra support and whatever. And there's exceptions. Some kid who's been out sick or any of those kinds of things happen. But generally speaking, um, I've actually, I used to kind of let them pick, but you know, if you, if some kids aren't given a pace, they won't have a pace at all. Uh, right, kids right. like what other strategies do you have to kind of what other strategies do you have to motivate those that, like you said, won't keep a pace and also to kind of keep everybody relatively moving in the same direction? With the that trick I have found, and this, as I was uh, writing uh, my new book, I was on kind of a quest uh, talking. I talked to a lot of people who are doing mastery learning. So, I mean, Aaron and I talked about mastery learning in our first book, Flicker Classroom, and we started dabbling with it. We wrote about that. But then, you know, I did the so, sort of, you know, left the school system to do the world tour and tell people stuff. And then I came back, but a lot of people continued to use the mastery model. And it, it wasn't just from our work, but others' works as well. So I interviewed 30, 35 people, I don't want to say, as I was doing the book. And one of my big quests was to solve some of the, the problems with mastery learning that I saw. And actually, the research says that mastery learning works best with students who struggle, not with your advanced students particularly. That's been the, the rub on it. And I said, I got to solve that problem. And it was kind of a conversation. It was two conversations, one with a, a middle school English teacher on, on the East Coast, somewhere I want to say New Jersey, Adam uh, Swan, and then um, a Finnish researcher where uh, the trick is, is I don't expect every kid to master the same level of content. So uh, though this unit that I was just talking about, the level nine, I want them to master everything in most of my units. So the previous unit, level eight, the most important content was that they master lesson one, two, and three. Everybody had to do that. That is the most important topics. That's the critical essential objectives. Uh, objective uh, five and six or four and five, four and five were nice to knows. So they literally, when they get to the end of a unit, 
Some students have chosen, it's like choose your own adventure. Some students will have mastered five topics. Some students have mastered three essential subjects. And so there literally are two different summative exams or two different types of summative exams. And um, then I uh, assign different points. My students still love points. I have an A, B, C, D, F school. I, I still believe in, I believe more in a competency-based grading system, but I don't get to use one. Um, I mean, I have one, but it's sort of hacked with numbers because they have to get a percentage. But anyways, that's a whole other story. But uh, so they have different levels of tests and they get to choose their own adventure. Are you gonna go for the, basically the full on harder test or are you gonna go for the easier test? You choose, pick. And that keeps my kids ish together. That's been the real, that's the game changer for me is that I can vary what the expectations are. Still making sure that they master the most important things, my students who, um, who lag behind. Well, I love what I love the point you're making because even if you're a teacher not doing anything close to mastery, not using any any style of screencasts or videos or flipping, I think what you just pointed out is really important for teachers to hear, and it's identifying skills and content in a unit as must know, critical, and nice to know. And I work a lot with teachers, especially now as a, as an instructional coach, and even when I consult with other districts is identifying that. And this, I always hear, I have to keep pace. I have to get through this lesson. I have to get to the next unit. And that pressure comes from many different directions. And I think it also is pressure teachers put on themselves. And I think part of it is a lack of time to understand the state standards. And in Pennsylvania, it's called eligible content in the state standards to know exactly what students are gonna be assessed on and exactly what students need to know. And when you actually look at that, it's really a, it's, it's so much shorter and it identifies exactly what you just said, the absolute critical to know content and the, the nice to know. And the, how, like in math, I have this conversation constantly. How much time are you spending on trying to get students to prove that they can do all of these different algorithms by hand instead of just putting a calculator in their hand and allowing them to apply the learning with much higher level types of questions and higher level thinking and reach that eligible content standard. And so I think it's really important for teachers to understand that from a content perspective, to know where you can cut corners or where you can enrich because enriching sometimes is the hardest style of differentiation. What's the next thing I can always get these kids to do other than another worksheet? Well, maybe it's exploring these nice to know concepts while you reinforce the must know concepts with the students that are not ready for that. How, do you have any other ideas or strategies for how you identify that other than just your experience and your deep understanding of the content you're teaching? That's been my go-to. I mean, the good news is before I flipped my class, I taught chemistry for 24 years. And, uh, uh, but you know, I, when I came to this new school, they asked me to teach physics and I took, taught physics for my first like, uh, in my third and fourth year of teaching, which is in the dark ages. So that was all kind of refresh content. And I've gotten way better at identifying. Frankly, that first year I taught way too many things and I've cut a lot of things out uh, as I've become more of an expert in that field. But the reality is, is there's someone at your school who knows this. I, I, I'll, I still do consulting, even though I'm teaching full time. I have three schools that I'm mentoring right now. And as I work with individual teachers or departments, depending on the school system, uh, that's a huge, what's, what's essential. I want you to look at this unit 
Okay, let's look at a unit on adding, you know, fourth grade, adding fractions with unlike denominators, or that whole for adding fractions, what's essential and what's not. And honestly, I have found the teacher said, yeah, here's the three things I wouldn't that aren't essential. And so they, it's not that hard. If you know your content reasonably well, you know what's important, what's not. And if you're a young teacher and maybe you don't know, there's an older teacher uh, at your school who knows, or that young use Twitter, you know, somebody out there has taught fourth grade forever and she knows what is essential and what's not essential in this very specific unit. And obviously use your state standards, um, whatever standards you're in. Uh, I know other countries have whatever, whatever your standard systems are, those are the kinds of things you want to look at. You know what's, or if you don't know, it's easy to figure it out. Right. And like you said, lean on the teachers that have been teaching that, that content for a while, because the longer you're in that grade level as an elementary teacher, or the longer you're in that, that specific area of content is, is where you'll really start to identify those. So, so lean on those veteran teachers. So the pandemic caused teachers to use screencasts a lot and videos a lot. And so five years ago, I think there were, there were a lot of teachers that didn't even know they could make screencasts and really know what screencasts were. And now they all know what it is. Everybody knows the what, everybody knows the how, but I don't think many people know the why. So can you speak to why screencasts, video lectures, anything that those pre-recorded things that you're using in your classroom, what are the, what are the true essential elements to make it a rich learning experience for students, whether it's the amount of time, the style of instruction, key components that you put in there. And, and then I want to kind of dig more into the, the why we use it in classrooms. So, I mean, something interesting is before when I would do a lot of the training, I spent a lot of time teaching teachers how to use and make screencasts. And post-pandemic, since I've been working with schools afterwards, I haven't spent a moment teaching them how to make a screencast. Um, they all know. The question, though, that I have found is teachers still don't know how to make a quality screencast. What are the elements that go into making quality screencasts? And as I have, you know, dug much deeper in, as a writer now, um, I have read research. I mean, one of the things you do when you write a book is you do a lot of research and discovered, for example, there's this this uh, uh, professor from it doesn't matter uh, but his name is richard mayer m-a-y-e-r and he's got these principles of effective digital design which uh, at first was he did this many many years ago on how to make an effective powerpoint for education but now he's of course moved into the issue of he's still around and he's continuing his research on rich multimedia experiences which of course now includes video and he's got these principles and i'm not sure i can rattle them off off the top of my head but um uh, the principle of Super, I don't know. He's got names, but I'll summarize a few of them. Number one, you said it, keep them short. So one thing is you, you want to have one topic. If it's a video, let's just talk about video. I still flip with text too, by the way. Um, but if, if it's a video is you want to keep it short. One thing I, I promise, I promise, I promise your listeners that if you have a 30 minute lecture that you deliver every year uh, on a topic, whatever, I promise you after getting decent at making a video, it'll be a 10 minute video. I actually call it the rule of three. It'll cut the time by a third. Now, if you can teach the same thing that you normally teach in 30 minutes, in 10 minutes, that's a win on time for your kids. The other benefit of that is... I'll add, I'll add a promise to that because it's 100% yeah, true. I, 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 that has been, I think that's my rule. It's, a, it's about a third. So the 30 becomes a 10. Okay, so I, I promise you, I promise you it will. Uh, the second thing that that does is, of course, then there's a pausing and rewindable device. 
We've all been in that lesson where the teacher was doing something and you were frantically taking notes and then he was on to the next subject and you lost, you're lost. Well, the beauty of a video is there's a pause and a rewind button. So students can pause and rewind and they can consume it at their pace. So that's huge. That's such a huge thing for them. Now, it's important, again, sort of not, I'm just rattling off other uh, important things, is I'm not talking about the quality of video now, I'm switching topics, but it's super important that you take time to teach your students how to watch an instructional video. And so I will spend, as a high school, I teach high school sophomores, juniors, and seniors. I will spend a week having them watch videos in my class. I will not assign videos at home because I want to watch them watch videos of me, which is weird, but I want, because I want to see how well they're taking notes and how well they're interacting with it, um, et cetera. So there are some things, I mean, you've mentioned Edpuzzle. So I use, I've used different tools. I've used Edpuzzle, I've used Actively Learn, I've used Perusall, and I keep switching which ones I like. I don't think it matters which one, just pick one. These are tools that I call video interaction tools where in the middle of the video, you can have it stop. And then when there is a question embedded in the uh, video, then there is, uh, it pauses their brain and forces them to do stuff. There was a study released yesterday or this week anyways, very recently that's uh, compared students who watched videos like with an ed puzzle where there were um, questions interspersed versus ones who just watched the video straight up. And the study said that actually the um, final the student achievement was equivalent whether they had the questions in the middle or not. But those who had the questions in the middle spent less time. So they had less time because what the, what the researchers postulated, I'm going to maybe butcher this a little bit, but I just had just read it just a couple days ago, is they had said something like that paused their brains and they were able to digest it faster. That sounds weird because the, the students who watched it through would have to watch it through again. But the students who had that pause and then they, they took more notes, they were more efficient with time by watching the videos. And it was, it was a study of, it wasn't a whole large group. It was like 70 students. So it wasn't like 7,000. Right. So it's probably kind of like the thing where you're reading and then you read, <clears throat> realize at the end of the page, you zoned out and you have to read right. the page again. And, and there's that, and then there's, you, and then you zone yeah. out and you read the page again. And exactly. I think that's exactly what's going mm -hmm. on. So, yeah. I mean, that's a best practice. Um, other things, let's go back to it, while you're making the video, other things that are known, uh, I forget again, what this principle is in Mayer's world, but, uh, students learn better from somebody who is talking in a conversational tone versus a, uh, a more formal tone. Uh, another principle that he'll talk about is you need to have a lot less uh, words, text, and a lot more pictures and illustrations. Um, if it's something like sort of mathy or a procedurally, then they need to watch you do it, uh, et cetera. There's, I mean, there, and he's got a list of, I wanna say 10 different principles. I, I could pull up the screen and, uh, and chunk them off right now. I just don't have them off top, top of brain right now. Yeah, I'll, I'll link to them in the yeah, show find, notes. Find Richard so Mayer's principles in AYER. Yep. It's very easy to find on the internet, uh, his stuff. He's, he's got some great stuff, so. Mm. Yeah, the the two that stick out to me are the the time, for sure. I've heard things like the time should match the grade level. Um, and I, I think there's there's some truth to that. Obviously, it's not a, a set in stone rule, but the younger the learners Absolutely. are, the less time they're going to be able to interact and focus with and it. never ever never and, never make it over 15 minutes even if you teach 18 year olds 
right? So um, I, I sometimes use this, the age of your student is your maximum number of minutes. So if you've got a 10 year old, the best you can do is a 10 minute video, but that's the, that's your max. It's your total upper limit. So. Right. Abs absolutely. And, and uh, the, the matching of the screen, I think is so important. Those visuals, like you talked about, and if you're solving a problem in math, they should watch the pen move across the screen. They should see you stroke every number, not see it in chunks or not see the end result. I think I'm a huge fan of uh, lightboard videos. So almost all of my videos now are made at a lightboard. And what a lightboard is, is a teacher is standing in front of a piece of glass, a literal piece of glass, and the glass is lit up. And behind them, they would have a black screen. That's typically, some are white, but typically they're black. And then um, the light board is lit up. I mean, if you're watching this, I'm standing in my lightboard studio right now. I've got this piece of glass and then there's black cloth. I've got it bent back because the vacuum eats it up. Uh, <laughs> but then I'm writing and you can see over on the wall, I have a camera. Uh, I've taken the camera off because that's a mount for my camera. And then um, I make these videos and then they see your face and they see you writing. It looks weird because people always ask, how are you writing backwards? Because then what you use is there's a software program that will flip it. Um, there's, there's companies uh, who make these uh, commercially, one that makes a real reasonable price one. It's one called eGlass. And I think it's like $700 and you get the glass and it on software that automatically flips the image and you just like push start and stop. There's some uh, other tools. Uh, there's a number of companies that make these commercially. When I first discovered this, I made my own. There's videos. In fact, I made a video on YouTube on how to make your own lightboard uh, for $50 and an iPhone. So it's not, you know, anyways, I just find that engaging because again, they can see your face and they can see you writing on the wall on the glass. It's, and it's for teachers. What I have found is it's, they all know how to write at a chalkboard. And <laughs> my school bought one for the school, a commercial one. The students or the teachers will walk in, they push on. They push record, they do their thing, they push stop, the video goes to Google Drive, and boom, they have a video. They upload it to Edpuzzle, is what they do. So Right. And the and the key of that is the simplicity. And the more that you do it, the more you find these different ways to engage and, and interact with the with the students. But when I first did it, I put a chair on a desk, propped my iPad up there, and wrote on the whiteboard as I taught. And it, it got the job done. And even as I improved my game, I would go back and look at those. And if some of them still got the job done, I just kept them because I didn't have the time to, to recreate all of those. And I still make some and, videos like that too. So one mm -hmm. thing I do, again, here's another sort of hack that I discovered from uh, an Australian educator is so when my students are struggling with a difficult problem, okay, so a problem set, I'm sorry, I teach chemistry and physics. So think of back to high school chemistry, and there's like these chemistry problems or physics problems you have to do. I've actually made like one minute videos on specific problems. And I call these helper videos. And so I create a Google Doc, which is a copy of their assignment assigned problems. And then it's for, for example, my students are working on 9.5 tonight, let's say and some of them are I have made a helper video on probably, and let's say there's 10 questions that they have to respond to, which is about right. I have probably made seven helper videos of one minute each. And so they open the Google doc, they click on the blue link. It goes to a Google drive video. They watch this one minute video and it's not the solution to the problem. It's the setup. It's, I call it the over the shoulder. So a student, if they were to come to me 
and said, Mr. Bergman, I'm struggling on number seven. What would I tell them? And this is that short little series of hints. And I just use, I just use a screencasting program and a tablet and make the video. Sometimes I'll do it with a light board, um, especially with the ease of which they use. I've done that, whatever, it doesn't matter what tool you use, but that's a really quick, easy way that students, if they are struggling on the thing, because you know, I've got a bunch of kids in a class and my goal is to go and talk and work with every single student, but I can't work with every single student at the same time. And a student knows that, hey, you know, I can actually get more of Mr. Bergman, even in class, pull out my, my school issued laptop, you know, bang, put some headphones in. I can watch a one minute video. I'm over my hump where I'm struggling. Boom. I can do problem seven. Mm-hmm. I love that. And the last piece that I want to, I want to highlight that you said is, is focusing is it should be a very direct one topic lesson. And an a, a example I like to, I like to provide is I, a big part of fifth grade math was fractions. I had a lesson on how to, find common denominators. I had another lesson on adding fractions and I had another lesson on subtracting fractions. That's a typical class that a teacher would try to cram everything in one class because all those skills go together, but they're very segmented. So it allowed me to leverage it in different ways. One, it allowed me to segment it for students or as I pulled data and I looked at how students were performing, I could identify, well, these seven students, they don't even know how to find common denominators yet. So I'm going to start them there. These seven students, they already get that concept. They just don't realize that they have to do that to add. So now I'm just going to throw them right onto the adding one. They don't need to know how to find common denominators. So it allows you to leverage those much more precisely for students and personalize that a little bit more. And it just, I just think it creates a better product. And and you said this in the beginning that I really want to, I really want to talk about flipping is the key to all of these different strategies and concepts that you're talking about. Small group instruction, center-based instruction, station rotation, mastery learning. All of these, our rocket fuel is poured on these when you have flipped lessons. There was a study done. I I cited this study in my TED Talk. Uh, There was a study done by, uh, I don't know who it was done, but it was was a study of 15,000 U.S. chemistry professors. All right. So that's a large sampling of chemistry professors across the United States, university professors. And they surveyed and they asked, how many of you have flipped your classroom? And surprised, I mean, I was very impressed that it was, it was 20 to 25, maybe 23, I don't know exact numbers, but well, it's a high percentage. I mean, a quarter of them. Uh, and this was pre-pandemic. But then the, the thing that was the most intriguing part of the study is they said this, that if a teacher flipped their class, a university professor, chemistry professor flipped his or her class, they were 16 times more likely, 16 times more likely to have an active classroom. All right, so that the classroom, they used active learning principles. And so uh, the way I, I interpret that is that I honestly think active learning is the magic sauce. It's not flipped learning, but flipped learning is the easy button to get you to active learning. It's what makes it easy because what it does is it gets the teacher away from the front of the room. And once you're away from the front of the room, most teachers, professors, whatever, they start asking the question, what am I going to now do with this extra time? You know, if they, and most of them say, wow, I can have more debates. Wow. My kids can start speaking Spanish more. Wow. My students can do more experiments. Wow. They can just practice more problems 
that are difficult for them and we could do more with them. Wow, we could do more Socratic seminars, it's whatever. It gives you that time. And if there's anything we've complained about as teachers for our whole careers, we don't have time to get to everything. Guess what? This gives you more time. Mm-hmm. It, it really does. And, and a lot of what I present and, and consult on is small group instruction. That was really how I facilitated my, my elementary classroom almost on a daily basis. And you talked about this earlier. You spent, you spent that whole first week training your kids how to watch your video lessons. And I, and I did something similar. I didn't spend, I didn't spend a whole week on it, but it, the, at least the first couple of times it was watching it, establishing the norms, establishing the expectations so that they understood how to do that. And I, I say to teachers, even if you're not going to use flipped lessons, think about how can, and you've spoken this a little bit, so I'd love for you to add in. You talk a lot about readings. How are you going to allow your students to learn content independently? And if you truly want to enhance your classroom with active learning, with small group instruction, your students have to be able to learn new content without you. If it's if the work without you is always practice and review, you will fall behind. They have to be able to learn new content. So even if it's reading articles, if it's annotating text, if it's if it's different concepts, you have to train them how to learn in that in that modality to make that possible. But the end of the day, I completely agree with you. Ignore flipping, ignore screencasting, ignore video lessons all you want. It is the single easiest way to allow you to interact more with your students on a one-on-one small group basis. And I've had teachers say to me, why do I want to record myself? I value the time I have with students. And I said, absolutely. That's why you want to record yourself. (laughs) because you value the time you have with students. I interact more with my students because they can lean on those as well as I can lean on those to create those small group uh, those small group moments. So can you speak more to how you're using the readings or other ways you're having your students? Yeah, let, let me back up and just say and, one other thing. I, I had a, you were talking about how much time you would train the students on how to, to use this new medium video. and. Just because students know how to watch a video doesn't mean they know how to watch an instructional video. And I, I was working with a sixth grade teacher here in Texas, um, a master flip teacher, and he would not send a video home for three weeks because he felt like he really, he really hammered home how to use those videos. And then they were ready. So, you know, if you've got younger students, I teach, you know, 10th, 11th, 12th graders, hopefully they're more mature than a sixth grader. Uh, sometimes they aren't. Uh, but the point is that, Yeah. So I would just encourage you to make sure you take time to teach them how. Anyways, what was the question? What was your ask? So you've talked a little bit about reading. So what are other ways you're having your students obtain content knowledge other than the videos? So I I think of it as pre-work, right? So the pre-learning or the pre... So in the world of flipped, we've actually come... So this is new since... um, say at least our first book, we talk about two spaces. We talk about the um, individual space, and then we talk about the group space or the independent space, actually. So in the independent space, that's where they're going to get introduced to new content. And so the principle of when they are working alone, it is something that would be um, easy for them. Okay, you are, it's not, so from a Bloom's taxonomic perspective, 
you want to be at the lower levels of Bloom's knowledge and understanding. And that's different for a third grader than for a 10th grader. So know your audience. So you want to best principle is you want to make sure there's that independent space. And what is the, you know, and you have to look at each individual lesson and say, is this the best independent space learning object? Is that a video or is that text? You have to just decide. I mean, you have to look and say in this lesson, it's best that they read. If this lesson, it's best that they watch a video. You have to decide lesson by lesson what is the best. Ideally, honestly, I think you can also give students choice. All right. So if I have a lesson, a video lesson on a topic and I have a textual, this is the introduction, the pre lower level blooms, independent space learning object, then they can choose the video or the text. And um, that's one thing that I like to do. I'm not quite all there yet, even with the content I've got now. I'd like to find some better text based readings on uh, my topics. But I do uh, text works. Uh, the, uh, the guy who you does text the best is uh, Eric Mazur. Eric is a, a physics professor at Harvard. He's a friend. He's an amazing guy. Um, and what he does, he assigns reading. And so he assigns actually a textbook. He has a physics textbook that Harvard physics students read and they will read section five uh, of chapter five or whatever it is, the topic of the day. And then in there, what he has them do is uh, he actually developed a software tool. I don't know if you've heard of it. It's a great tool called Perusall, P-E-R-U-S-A-L-L. -L. It's a free tool and you can upload videos or it's primarily a text reading tool. So think like Edpuzzle with words. So the students are reading it. It's tracking their reading. And then what they can do is he expects them to write questions so they can like read and, you know, line 17, they highlight line 17 and they ask a question. But it's a social reading platform such that can you can see what I wrote and then you can respond to my question. And so he's got, you know, it's, it's a Harvard physics class, large lecture hall physics. He might have 100 or 200 students. I don't know. It's not like my classes that are, you know, in the 20s. So he's got, you know, a lot of students and then they are responding back and forth to each other in the independent space outside of class. And when they come to class, he looks at their questions and that's how he decides what are they struggling with and what am I going to do? As a note, he built this tool, Perusol, with his buddy, who's an artificial intelligence professor at Harvard. Uh, he's now at Texas, I think, the artificial intelligence guy. But anyways, crazy smart people. So there, the AI is actually analyzing all the responses of the students and actually it can produce what they call a confusion report. So it can summarize. So if you have 100 students who make five or six comments, to read all those would be a lot of work, right? Well, guess what? The AI reads it and he just says, what's the, oh, I see what they're confused about. <laughs> it, right, because it's going to be slightly different comments, but the technology is kind yeah, of and, consuming all that. And, and, and so now he knows where to start his class. And so, so that's a good way to use text. Uh, and the same thing, by the way, what happens with a video, I can upload, I used that tool last year. I switched to a different tool. I keep changing around what tool I have. Uh, and then the students, I could upload a video to it and they would pause the video at, you know, five minutes and 22 seconds and they would make their comment and I get the same AI analysis tool that he had uh, as well. So, I mean, whatever, uh, those are some ways to use text, but I guess I've, you know, as I've written multiple times in my books, I encourage you just to think lesson by lesson, 
the pre-learning activity, is it better to do it on text or video? You decide. Then the, the difficulty, of course, is what will you do with your class? Then what's the best activity for them to really learn this? Is it just small group tutorial? Is it them to take it to the next level? I mean, I think in my classes just in the last few days, my students in my physics class, they've been learning about circuits, but the real learning happens, honestly, when they have a circuit, right, with wires and light bulbs. And so they have, they build these circuits and then I make them sit there and I say, why is it happening? So the last bulb, this conversation I had just hours ago, um, this bulb is dim and this one is bright, why? And how's, how does that relate to how uh, circuits are best understood kind of also, uh, and it's a big analogy with like a water pressure. And so talk to me about water pressure. So they have to talk about a, a plumbing system with water. And as they, that really helps them kind of get the real visual of what's going on, but they have to sit and literally explain it and say, when you can explain it, that's what I, then I'm ready to talk. You can build it because they can, you know, put a wire here, put a wire here, put a light bulb here, put a resistor here, da, 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 da. They can build it, but then they have to explain to me why, what happened, happened. That's their assessment. That's the, and then they get it. And then they go back to like, you know, paper circuit and they, oh, you know, light bulb moment. But they watched a cheesy video of me with, you know, writing wire lines on a board, you know, kind of boring video in many ways, but, you know, they, they needed to have that introduction. So they kind of had a sense. Mm -hmm. It's so powerful. It's, it's something that, like I said to you, I think maybe before we recorded, I first attempted this in 2015 and I, w I went all in. I didn't have my own kids at the time and I just went all in. I recorded probably over a hundred lessons that year and was flipping. I was at that time, my, most of my students could watch online, but I was actually, and I think I remember reading this in your book, I was giving out DVDs to kids that didn't have internet access at home. So I was burning DVDs. Um, I don't even know if I would know how to do that nowadays, but, uh, you know, passing those out to kids as, as they went. And then when I reflected on it, it was very successful. But then when I was in year two, it was like, and I already have all this. And then, it, then the data piece came in. Well, well, that kid doesn't need to watch that lesson. He already knows how to do this. And that's where it all came back into the classroom. And I ended up sending very little home because I was able to plug and play with, with what they need and, and when they need. And it, I just can't reiterate enough. I'm very passionate about this. It is the game changer to any type of instructional strategy you want to do because you're you're just multiplying yourself. At the very end of the day, at the very simple fashion, you are multiplying yourself in your ability to service your students and to support them and to do all of those cool activities like you're talking yeah, about. I mean, if so you're passionate I want, about project-based learning, if you're pa passionate about mm -hmm. inquiry learning, if you're passionate about pick your whatever, you will be able to do it better. There's even research out there. I mean, I, I, I keep update on what's going on in the flip learning research and they'll say this particular model, there's a, what's it called in physics? Oh, I should know this. It's escaping me. It's patterns physics. No, it's, there's a particular modeling physics. There's this, uh, this methodology of teaching physics called modeling. A lot of experimentation and inquiry in modeling physics There's modeling chemistry. It's a, it's a kind of inquiry technique. And there was a research study that said, Modeling by itself or modeling plus flipped. Flip modeling plus flipped wins because they got more time to do the modeling stuff. So, I mean, in their study after study about things like that, you know, does inquiry plus flipped or just inquiry inquiry plus flipped wins. I mean, you know, it's just cause you've got more time. 
Another thing you haven't said or we haven't talked about that I think we really should make sure we talk about, my, my belief about what makes good teaching good, we've said active learning, but I think there's another component and that is relationships. And the it is the social emotional needs of our students. And if I've seen anything in the sense of COVID is I've seen more social emotional needs than I've ever seen in my career. Um, COVID did a number on our kids. I don't, that's my experience. And, and I've, I've talked to teachers. I have a privilege of talking to teachers all over the world all the time. I'm hearing the same thing everywhere in the corner of the globe. The beautiful thing about flipped is that you have more time to guess, not just help them with their math facts or whatever you're teaching them, but to get to know them and to develop that, that, you know, kids need adults in their lives that care. Uh, so let's not forget that piece of this because frankly, flipped learning humanizes education in ways that are very intangible. And, and I really think when you mix the two, um, you know, active learning and relationships for the win, I mean, it, it's easy if you're just going to stand up and do the chalk talk to hide behind your lecture and not take the time to really get to know the kids. But if your job is to walk around and sit with kids, I mean, I sit and talk with kids all day long. That's what I do. I don't talk to whole groups of kids. Um, except at the first five minutes to kind of make sure I know who's doing what, where it's my, I call it triage so I can get them know who's doing what. And then, um, I'm walking around helping kids, but guess what? In that conversation, I get to not just help kids about science. Yeah, you're totally right. And, and you know, you rattled off project-based learning, inquiry learning, active learning, the sweet spot of all of those is it increases your opportunity to form those relationships, like you said, because you get to know your students more both academically, but then you have the the easy access to those those social conversations when you're floating around the room, when you're pulling small groups, when you're when you're working with students one on one. So I want to be respectful of your time and, and we always wrap up with an exit ticket, which is the same four questions we ask every guest every week. But I want to ask one question before that, because I feel like we've talked in depth about this in a, in a very valuable way. And I think we've painted the picture of what it can look like. And so the last piece of advice I'd like to, to hear from you is where do teachers start now? And that, and I'm excited for this answer because I know what my answer was four years ago before the pandemic, but now we've crossed the threshold of teachers understanding the technology. So what is your advice for teachers that most likely know how to make screencasts? They know how to make some videos. They know how to upload them and share them to students. What is their first step in attempting to use flipped lessons in their classroom? If you're just starting out, the good news is you don't have to flip a class. You can flip a lesson, right? So when I first started doing this, I was all in like you can, and I flipped everything, but that doesn't mean you have to start. Maybe you've got kids, you've got a mortgage, you got a life and you don't have time. Uh, flip a lesson here, flip one unit, and then build this in. I'm working with a school now here in the Texas area. And uh, I was uh, going over plans so that the plan was, is that, is that, that each person in this pilot would flip a class starting next school year. So we learned, we took a year to learn how to flip well, and now they're going to plan to flip a class. But some teachers, you know, they said, you know, next year I've got 10 units, like fourth grade teacher, I'm just going to do writing. Um, and I'm probably going to only flip of my eight units. I'm going to get six of them done, but then I'll have six done. And the next year I'll get, the rest of them done, or maybe I'll do math. So they're trying to make it work with their life. And so I'd encourage you to make it work with your life. And secondly, I think, you know, not to sound 
uh, you know, self, whatever the word is, uh, telling you to sell you something. But uh, Aaron Sams and I have just rewritten or have a new, I mean, totally updated new version of our first book, Flip Your Classroom, comes out, we're, we're recording this in April, comes out in May or June, like in the next few weeks. I would encourage you to pick up a copy of that. And if you're really interested in like going all in on mastery, um, uh, my book, Mastery Learning Handbook, um, was number one on Amazon in curriculum instruction for a time when it first came out just in October. So this is also a very new book which will walk you through the logistics of how to do mastery learning and do it well. My point in writing that book was a lot of people talk about doing mastery or competency-based learning, but how do you actually do it with six classes a day and you know 30 kids in a class? Well, I do it every day. I promise you can do it. And um, if you're in Houston, Texas, you're welcome to come to my class, by the way. Send me an email, johnbergman.com. Find my email address or my contact information. And you are so welcome to come just talk to my kids. So there you go. I love it. So I want to jump into our exit ticket, which, like I said, is the same four questions we ask every guest every week. Question number one, what is the best thing a teacher can do to make a student's school experience better? Care. Care about them individually. Get to know them. Uh, kids need an advocate. They need somebody who cares? I mean, so recently, um, I have a student who's not been as engaged, um, and I, I've been trying to figure out how to reach him. And he, he can be kind of a, a bit of a wild kid sometimes, but also quiet. He's kind of an interesting young man. And um, his, his name, his abbreviation is CS, first initial C, first name is C, last name is S, and then it just came to me. And um, I teach chemistry. CS is the element cesium. CS, cesium is the most reactive element on the periodic table. Um, and so I called, started calling in cesium. Dad, if that kid doesn't, he goes by cesium now. He's, his baseball coach calls him cesium. <laughs> and uh, I, it's just, and then he uh, had to invite the teacher. It was like, invite your teacher to the baseball game night. And who does he invite? Me. The guy who came up with his new name, and he loves that his, his name is Cesium. I just call him Cesium. So, I mean, that little thing, he just needed to be noticed. And I was going to say, he loves it because you noticed right. it. Right. That's all it came down to. I mean, that I had a cheesy way to do it, it made the difference. He'll remember that his name was Cesium for the rest of his life. Who know, I mean, I'm actually trying to think how I could do this with other kids. So, <laughs> yeah. Periodic table is pretty big. I, know, I think, I I think the potential is that you might not be able right. to match the initials, yeah. but even if you uh, just go with its with its qualities, or you know, it would even be a fun activity is just have them. I've, I've had that exact same element. thought, like beginning of right. the year. You got to yeah, have them pick the element. You're bored. That yeah. best that best showcases their their qualities. Yeah, yeah. So, second question: What is the best piece of advice you've ever received? Could be from a colleague, a supervisor, or even a student. Best advice I've ever received. So I taught with a gal one of my first few years of teaching, and she was the Colorado Teacher of the Year, and I like worshipped her. She was, and she taught the kids who um, were the kids who struggled the most at school. Right? She taught BD kids and kid, you know, she's a special education teacher. And actually, I don't know if it's the best advice, but when when she turned to me, I was like really trying to be the best teacher I could possibly be. Right, young you know, motivated teacher. And she says, you know, John, 
I don't think I can actually reach every kid. I thought, you're the best teacher in Colorado. <laughs> if you can't reach every kid, it gave, it took the pressure off me that I didn't have to be everything to every kid at every time. Uh, that's, we just had a conversation at my current school a couple of days ago and we were talking. So our students do a student evaluation of teachers. Like everyone takes the same evaluation of, you know, some for me and some for my colleagues. And we were just having this conversation and, you know, some of the kids, some, you know, in my class, some of the kids said they felt like they didn't connect with me. That's like one of the questions. Our school really values relationships, et cetera. And um, it was very few, but it's like, really, what have I done? And then our conversation just went to me and my colleagues. It's just like, you know, the reality is I'm not going to reach every kid. I reached cesium, but maybe I didn't reach barium. I don't know. You know, I didn't reach that other kid. Um, and I have to be okay with that. My, my hope is that, that they're really connecting with another adult. Maybe they've, they're connecting with their, their history teacher or their physical education teacher or whatever. And that's fine. Every kid needs an adult advocate for them. So. It's hard. It's like a punch to the heart when you, when you get something like that, because you, you truly do care. It was so much literally one child that, of but... all the kids. And so, right. and it could be the right. kid. I mean, I know high school kids enough to know that it's like, Hey, let's just have fun and just pick buttons to push. It could be that. So mm -hmm. I'm not totally like worried because the right. results were very good, right. but there was like, you know, so it could just be goofy kids. Mm -hmm. But you, you do have to accept that yep. you have to accept, you know, I, I always tried to be very, uh, I, I try to always be there as much as possible for my students and let them know that they could always come to me when they were having concerns or problems. But I would always say, if you have that concern, if you feel you like you need someone and I'm not the person, tell me and I'll send you to the person. And as much as I always wanted to be the person for them to come to, I also took pride in knowing that they could at least come to me to say, Mr. Ehrman, I really need to talk to an adult, but can I go talk to so-and-so? And I wanted that to be that person, but that was enough because they still trusted me on a layer to say that they needed someone else. And there are, I think and there so are some was, people that are certainly some teachers I in my school and all the schools I've taught that are just gifted in that sort of empathetic mm -hmm. uh connections with kids and i don't i'm not really that way i i love kids mm -hmm. and i think they we really have an opportunity to really connect but i'm not i mean if they're really going through a crazy difficult time i doubt i'm the first person they're going to think of uh, they love the innovative right. way i teach they love and there's a lot of things i think they love about how i am but i'm just not built to be that sort of deep relational um teacher they're going to go to. We've got teachers like that. Right. And not just teachers, right. Some of them are counselors, even like secretary. Right. And you know, every, they need an adult who's on their side. It doesn't have to be it. Absolutely. Absolutely. So we know the school year goes in waves. There are days or weeks that we struggle to survive, whether it be report card time, conference time. What is something that every educator needs to hear to power up in that moment of struggle? Uh, I was at a conference recently, the ASCD conference, and I was really impacted by the keynote speaker whose name is escaping me right now. But what he said is he encourages you to think finitely because he actually talks about this. He was a speaker about teacher well-being and teacher wellness. And that really has impacted me is that if it's your best moment, it's going to come to an end. But if it's your worst moment, it will end. There's a finite time. And... Also, on the flip side of that, is the only moment that you have 
with your students is that moment that you're in. And so when you are in that class, when I'll be in class tomorrow morning with my students, there will never be a time like that ever again, where we're going to be having the same group of kids doing the same things at that time and to value that time and to live in the moment. And that is really, that's really, it's gotten me thinking a lot in the last you know few weeks since I came back from that conference. I took copious notes. This guy was just brilliant. Um, he's written a book. I, I, again, the name is escaping me, but um, yeah, finite thinking. Yeah, I think that's great. So last question. It's easy to fall into facilitating a repetitive classroom. I'm really excited for this one. What separates teachers who are constantly the ones seeking to change, innovate, and adopt new teaching strategies? You just got to be willing to evaluate and say, this doesn't work, um, and this does. And every time something fails, decide if it just needs to be changed or tweaked. Um, you know, like with FlipLearn, there's a study done, again, I've been keeping up on the studies, a recent study that said students at first don't like flip learning, um, this university, and but after six weeks, they start to love it more because they have to get used to the new method. So, so I don't want you to, if you're trying something new, sometimes you give up too soon. So I don't want you to say, just because it doesn't work the first time, you throw it out. You need to keep practicing. But at some point, if you've done it enough, you need to say, how can I tweak this and make it better? So, I mean, even as I was writing this book, right, I said, you know, instead of having two levels of tests, I had three levels. So if you read this book, I talk about having three levels of tests. Well, in this intervening time, since I wrote the book and the book got published, I switched to two levels. And I found that that works way better because it's like, it was just too, logistically getting to be too difficult to manage. And so even though I've published this, <laughs> I've decided to change because I don't know. So maybe the answer is reflection. I don't know. In a nutshell, reflect on what you're doing and then do something about it. Absolutely. So last thing is just tell us how our audience can connect with you, follow along with you and, and learn more from you. So just go to johnbergman.com. Now John spelled weird, J-O-N Bergman, B-E-R-G-M-A, and then two N's.com, johnbergman.com, at John Bergman at Twitter. Those are a couple of places you can find me. And then if you can, you know, I've got a podcast. You can listen to my podcast. I've got books, uh, newsletters, those kinds of things. So I encourage you to uh, connect. And come see me. If you are in Houston, you know, come see me and teach and just meet my kids. I hope I find myself in Houston in the, yeah. in the near future yeah. so I can, Reach out. I can take you up on that one. It's, it's becoming more common. People are just stopping by. I had a few teachers, I guess about a month ago, and uh, they just hung out for half a day and they got to talk to my kids and sort of see it in action. So, yeah. That's great. There's, there's nothing better than teachers seeing teachers as a, as a coach, we've been spending more and more time covering classes for teachers, not as sub coverage, but for instructional goals. So I can cover their class so that they can go see a colleague utilizing instructional strategy that they're hoping to adopt because it's so much more powerful for them to see it even more powerful than me leading a model lesson for them, them just seeing someone in the same space where they feel, you know, they, it's just, just, it's just different. Getting to see teachers teaches is the best. There, thing you know, there's you a study do. on that. Um, there's a Harvard study uh, that basically asks what causes teachers to change their practice. Um, is it the superintendent? No. Is it the principal? No. Is it the director of PD? No. Is it the instructional coach? No. <laughs> The biggest 
change is if another teacher is doing it, especially if it's the guy across the hallway. Um, anyways, there's, there's, if you ever, I could find that study if you care, but it's, it's fascinating. It's like, yeah, makes sense. It, it really does. That's, that's really fascinating. So John, I, I really, really appreciate it. This is, this has been a pleasure for me. I've, I've, I've been following you for a long time and I just have a lot of respect for what you do. I love, I love how you've changed, how you've, uh, how you've adopted what you created so long ago. You're back in the classroom to, to learn new ways and learn new strategies. I just think it's, it's fantastic. So thank you so much for our time. And I also know now if I ever need a study on something, I'm going to shoot you an email and ask, does this study exist? And you can let me know if I should, if I should search for it or not. Well, there's not. this thing called so, Google Scholar and you can set up, uh, I, you know, alerts. And that's how I know about these things. Cause I just read okay. the alerts. It's not, it's, that's interesting. I, if there's, I read the abstracts and, or if the topic suits me, then I will dig down deeper. And if it doesn't, I just ignore it. So it's not, it doesn't awesome. take a huge amount of time to set up a Google Scholar alert. And it's like, oh, there's a new study out on flipped learning or on whatever. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, John. Uh, thank you to our audience for joining in and listening. And I encourage you to visit his website. Everything that John talked about, some of the uh, people, some of the studies, I will link up to our show notes page which can be found if you just scroll down wherever you're watching or listening or go to our website at powereduup.com and I'll link up to, to your site as well, John. So you left me feeling absolutely powered up and we're going to go ahead and power this down, this episode down now. Have a good night, everyone, and be well. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast. If you haven't already, please subscribe on whichever platform you're listening to or watching us on YouTube. Each week we get to talk to amazing educators who are making a positive impact on the lives of students, their colleagues, administrators, and education as a whole. It's been such a privilege every week to be able to talk to these incredible individuals, learn from them, grow with them, and better myself and all of education through these conversations. If you haven't already, please consider sharing this with a colleague, someone who can benefit and be powered up from the experience of listening to these incredible conversations. Because of Powered Up, we are powering education by empowering you.